Hello and welcome to edition number 1970, yes we're nearly at 2000, of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney on Thursday, July the 20th. My name is Byron Russell and I edited this edition. Our readers today are Barbara Berenger, Jill Breakspeare, Andrew Dilger and Mike Franklin. Our technical whiz tonight is Rob Oxpring, whose skills will make this recording and its online edition possible. This week, we have news items from the Whitney Gazette and the Oxford Times. In this edition, among other items, we'll hear about Boris Johnson's new swimming pool and the rescue of a dozen kittens from a Grand Prix garage. But our first report tonight is about the controversial 2,500-acre solar farm, And it's read to us by Barbara. Yes, my article is MP Backs Battle Against New 2,400-Acre Solar Farm. Whitney's MP is demanding the government responds to what he calls the disproportionate threat to farmland and the character of our local areas posed by a 2,500-acre solar farm. Robert Courts, MP for West Oxfordshire, intends to present a constituent's petition to Parliament after the summer recess to show the strength of feeling against the proposed West Botley solar farm. If approved, the facility could span three sites, north of Woodstock, west of Kidlington and west of Botley. It would impact Tackley, Wootton, Glimpton, Bladen, Woodstock, Longhamborough, Church Hambra, Rousham, Ensham and Cassington in West Oxfordshire, as well as Cumnor, west of Oxford. Developer Photovolt Development Partners, that's PVDP, said it will be able to power up to 330,000 homes. But Mr Courts has said he has grave concerns about the size and scale of these proposals, which appears to represent a disproportionate threat to agricultural land in West Oxfordshire. He said we all accept that if we are to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and achieve our ambitious net zero targets, significant steps will be required. However, this does not mean that the renewables industry can be given carte blanche to develop huge greenfield sites which can have both a negative impact on our countryside and a negative impact on the character of our local areas. While we must rightly pursue decarbonisation, as all conservationists know, it would be foolish to do so in a way that is destructive to our natural environment. Mr Court's petition steps up the joint campaign against the proposed solar farm, which is so large it would be considered as a nationally significant infrastructure project, that's an NSIP. It will not automatically stop the proposals, but it has a very strong role in showing how strongly we all feel about this, he said, because the petition will be presented in the Chamber of the House of Commons when the House returns after the summer recess. It will be recorded on Hansard and, most importantly, and will require the government to respond. This matters because it is the government that will be deciding on this proposal, and so a clear demonstration of feeling at this stage is essential. The text of the petition of the residents of Whitney and West Oxfordshire 
declares that the solar farm is detrimental to the local community, notes that its scale and design are incompatible with the current infrastructure of the area, further declares that preservation of farmland for food security, local amenity, rural character and green belt preservation must take precedence when considering solar farm applications. The petitioners request that the House of Commons urge the government to reject the application when it is presented. It also asks the House to immediately update the National Planning Policy Framework to give clearer, stricter guidance on the appropriate location, scale and design of solar farms, including the definition to be used when sites are declared to be temporary. Thanks very much, Barbara. Um, And now we head for more controversy as we hand over to Andrew, who reports on what the headline calls Thames Water's Badge of Shame. Thames Water has been rated only two stars in the Environment Agency's latest annual report, with the number of serious pollution incidents on the rise. The Environment Agency's annual performance report has said that Thames Water requires significant improvement in a number of areas. After it was found, the total number of pollution incidents increased from 271 in 2021 to 331 in 2022. The report assesses water companies and then gives them a rating out of four stars. Four companies, including Thames Water, have been given the same rating for 2022 as the previous year. Environment Agency Thames Area Director Emma Hill said she was very concerned about the company's late delivery of environmental improvement works. She said, We expect Thames Water to increase the scale and pace of action to reduce the number of pollution incidents and we will continue to take enforcement action against the company if this is not the case. The agency is particularly concerned about Thames Water's late or non-reporting of six serious incidents, as only six out of the 17 serious pollution incidents were self-reported. This equates to a self-reporting rate of 35%, which is the worst performance in the sector. Oxford City Councillor Chris Jarvis said the two-star rating should be a shocking badge of shame and was the latest evidence that Thames Water is a walking disaster. He said, With every passing day, it becomes clearer and clearer that it is time to end the organised scam of privatisation. Thames Water should be taken into public ownership so it can be made to work for people and not for profit. The Environment Agency's report found that Thames Water was responsible for 50% of the most serious incidents across the whole water company sector. Water Minister Rebecca Powell said the government had put in place new regulatory powers which allow the Environment Agency to impose sanctions on water companies without always going through the courts. She said, The report shows there is significant work to do to drive the improvements in our rivers and seas. 
A Thames Water spokesman said, Protecting the environment is fundamental to what we do, and we recognise our performance in preventing pollutions is still not good enough. We're committed to turning this around, and our shareholders have approved additional funding into the business so we can improve outcomes for customers, leakage, and river health. We have plans to upgrade over 250 of our sewage treatment works and are striving every day to reduce the discharge of untreated sewage into our rivers. And there's a nice photo with this of protesters on Bridge Street in Whitney holding placards, one of which says, What do we want? Turds out. When do we want it? Now. So, moving away from controversy and on to something a little bit more light-hearted, it's time for a story about our old mate Jeremy Clarkson. But this time, it's something a little different from ding-dong battles over Diddley Squat Farm. Over to you, Jill. And the heading is Clarkson Tall Car, given as raffle prize. One of Jeremy Clarkson's cars, driven in the Grand Tour Euro Crash, has been given away as a prize in a charity draw. It is the first time one of Mr Clarkson's car has been available to win. The money raised will go to the mix, which provides free, confidential support for young people under 25 via online, social and mobile. The charity said, The luxury car features in the grand in the current season of the Grand Tour and has been personally styled by Clarkson himself to boast twin chandeliers at the front and a claymation print inside. Anyone could participate by purchasing a ticket online for £5, with all proceeds going directly to the mix and its services. As the draw deadline approached at the, end, at the weekend, more than £23,590 had already been raised. The car has an MOT valid until June 12, 2024. The winner was asked to arrange collection of the car from Diddley Squat Farm Shop within 21 days of the draw being made. And there's a lovely colour photo of this splendid raffle prize, um, boasting a chandelier on each wing. Thanks very much, Jill. And uh, finally, in this first round, we're back into controversy. Mike has the story of a very sad badger. The headline is Sad Badger Protests Against Shameful Cull. A wildlife lover, lover dressed in a badger costume staged a protest in Whitney against the government's badger cull. Debbie White, manager of the Vaccination and Rescue Project at Oxford Badger Group held her protest under the Butter Cross in Whitney's Market Square with placards saying, I am sad and Oxfordshire Badger shame. The group, a charity affiliated to the Badger Trust, is opposed to the culling of badgers, which the government says prevents the spread of bovine TB. TB. The group said Whitney was the sad Badger's stop-off today. The badger cull is far from over. In fact, there are plans that could see the cull changing to an epidemiological culling where 100% of badgers in some areas will be wiped out 
epidemiological culling can be can be licensed if if local vets cite badgers as a likely source of infection. The group urged people to write to their MP to demand the cull comes to a complete end. Miss White has also staged protests costume in costume in Oxford and Banbury and took part in a 50-strong protest outside the House of Commons last week. She said, We are going to do a pop-up protest once a week until the cull starts in September, just to remind people that the cull is still going on. Some people think it is, was a one-off. Badger culling began in Oxfordshire in 2020. Miss White said, It started with one zone called Area 49, We do not get told where these areas are. Then in 2021, they added Area 61, a second zone. In 2022, we had a third zone, Area 69. Last year, the group said 1,371 badgers were culled in Oxfordshire and at least 33,627 nationally, according to the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA. Miss White said, We do not know whether there will be another zone added in Oxfordshire this year, but they can come back and add new land to the existing areas if landowners want to join the cull. It's a four-year licence, so this will be the last year for Zone 1, but there is a caveat. They can add two years of supplementary culling. Some some farmers' organisations and DEFRA are in favour of a policy of badger culling because of the mounting costs of the disease to farmers. Culling test positive for a BTB test must be slaughtered and the farmer paid compensation. Miss White said it was down to individual landowners where they are supporting culling as they were approached by the group with an offer of vaccination as well as by the government. It's down to the landowners which way they want to go, she said. Or they can choose to do nothing, which is fine. She added, bovine TB is a cattle disease which spreads from cattle to cattle. The chances of badgers having it in the first place and passing it to cattle is minimal. The clue is in the name. Hospital care for dog bites is on the rise. The number of dog bites, wounds, treated in hospitals in Oxfordshire rose last year, new figures show. The Dogs Trust said trusting basic dog training is not enough in preventing pets from biting as the number of dog bite wounds treated in hospitals across England continues to rise. NHS data shows there were about 120 episodes of patients being treated in hospital for dog bites in the former NHS Oxfordshire CCG in the year to March 2023, up from 100 the year before. These figures are rounded and are not a count of people, as one person could be seen more than once within the year. Nationally, there has been a rising number of episodes of people in hospital because of a dog bite, with provisional 9,300 recorded in 2022-23. to 23. It is an increase from 8,800 the year prior 
and the highest number since at least 2011. Owen Sharp, Chief Executive at Dogs Trust, said most dogs live harmoniously within families, but most bites happen within the home. Basic training of dogs is not enough. Close supervision of children and dogs while interacting is the most effective way of preventing incidents, he said. Unfortunately, when the worst does happen, not only are children injured, but it can also have a devastating impact on the family pet, with some dogs handed over to organisations like ours for rehoming, or in some cases, euthanised. Separate data shows 1,700 children were admitted to hospital in the last year because of a dog bite incident. Dr Samantha Gaines, Head of Companion Animals at the RSPCA, said we don't ever expect our own dogs to bite, but all dogs can. It doesn't matter what size or breed they are. Parents and guardians naturally love the idea of their child having a close bond with the family dog, and in many cases they do. But having a close bond doesn't mean that the dog will never bite. She added a small amount of research by pet owners on dog body language would prevent countless accidents. Katrina Phillips, Chief Executive of the Child Accident Prevention Trust, added... Summer holidays often lead to an increase in dog bites as children and dogs spend more time together. Give your dog a safe space. They can go when they need time out from children's exuberance, she said. And the headline of this one is Serious Crash Near Large Music Event. A serious car crash which took place on a busy road is thought to have happened near a music event attended by hundreds of people, a police update has revealed. Thames Valley Police is now asking the public for evidence in connection with a serious crash which took place on the A14 near Cassington on Sunday around 12.15am. Investigating Officer Sergeant James Matthews said... We believe that the collision took place near to an event which was attended by several hundred people. I am appealing to anyone who attended the event or anyone who may have witnessed the collision or has any footage of the collision or the vehicles to please contact the police. I would also appeal to anybody who may have dash cam footage from around the time of the collision to please contact us. A Mercedes-Benz Vito and a Hyundai Santa Fe crashed on the A40 between Horsemere Lane and Ensham Road at around 12.15am on Sunday, July the 9th, which also resulted in pedestrians being injured. Thames Valley Police, South Central Ambulance Service and Oxfordshire Fire and Rescue attended the scene. Several people were taken to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. There were no reports of arrests in connection with the incident. And following on from that piece you've just heard read, um, the next piece is headed, Fears Raised Over Path at Crash Spot. 
A serious early morning crash involving pedestrians came days after locals raised fears there would be a fatality at the location the Oxford Mail can can reveal. Seven people were taken to hospital after the incident on the A40 near Cassington in the early hours of of Sunday, July 9th. But it is not known yet how many of those hospitalised in the crash were pedestrians. It came after local people hit out at the dangerous pathway, now half its original, that runs alongside the A40 between Oxford and Whitney. The path, the path has become overgrown with grass, weeds and overhanging branches. Oxfordshire County Council insisted the route was safe to use, saying that the path had been trimmed at the start of June. They have since said that they will assist Thames Valley Police in their investigations into the cause of the collision. Whitney resident and cyclist Paul Elliott said, It is now very dangerous to pass oncoming cyclists and pedestrians safely. The grass and weeds have encroached onto the actual path, making it less than half its original width. I reported this several times over the last few years to fix my street, each time being told this complaint is closed or already reported by someone else. This is a complete joke. If the maintenance was kept up, it would cost less in the long term. (coughs) Fix My Street is a website which allows people to inform their local authority of problems needing attention. Other residents have raised concerns about the height of overhanging trees on the pathway. One person commented (coughs) on Fix My Street, It is not possible to cycle along this stretch without having to lower your head. This stretch of the cycle path is sloped and consequently is a fast section when travelling towards Oxford with no barriers between the cycle path and major trunk road. If a cyclist were to collide with this tree branch, the cyclist would fall into the traffic lane of the A40, with traffic arriving from behind with the potential for very, very serious injuries. Improvements to the walk-in and cycling route on the A40 are due to be discussed at the Oxfordshire County Council Cabinet meeting on July the 18th. Councillor Duncan Enright, Oxfordshire County Councillor's County Council's Cabinet Member for Travel and Development Strategy said, This investment in travel along the A40 is much needed. Our intention is to make it easier to access West Oxfordshire and to make best use of the funds available to improve bus services and prioritise active travel. The new improved cycle route will offer better and safer facilities for residents and visitors alike. Council's suggestions include the addition of controlled crossings and upgraded shared-use paths to make walking and cycling safer along the historically congested A40 between Whitney and Oxford. Pub dating back to the 1500s reopens with new owner. A pub dating back to the 1500s has reopened under new owners. The Bull in Chalbury underwent a refurbishment before James Gummer and Phil Winsner, who were brought up in the area, reopened the pub on the corner of Sheep Street. The pub, which reopened on Saturday, July 9th, 
also has 10 guest rooms which visitors can stay in. The new owners are also the team behind the Pelican in Notting Hill. A restaurant statement said, Primarily a local pub serving good beer, we also have a restaurant centred on around an open fire cooking. At the Bull, we want to cut out the middleman. We have daily conversations with our farmers and growers. New railway lines should come before housing. Building new railways provides an opportunity to control the huge swathe of homes which will be built in the next decade, a councillor has warned. The Liberal Democrats' parliamentary candidate for Whitney and chairman of the Whitney Oxford Transport Group, Charlie Maynard, has said a new railway line allows housing to be allocated to areas in a more organised fashion and prevents new homeowners becoming cut off from the city. Mr Maynard has been at the heart of a campaign which has put together proposals for a new line between Whitney and Oxford and this would connect passengers to Oxford within 16 minutes. The Oxford to Whitney line closed in 1962 and a major hurdle in the way of the proposed rail link are the estimated costs of £700 million upwards. Mr Maynard said, I've spent years working on this rail project because I feel that West Oxfordshire housing is put down haphazardly and we are going to have lots of housing coming at us. We shouldn't hide underneath a rock as this housing is coming anyway. Mr Maynard highlighted West Oxfordshire was signed up for 10,500 homes between 2021 and 2031, meaning the area's housing stock is set to increase by as much as 22% in the next decade. He warned that without new railway infrastructure, this enormous chunk of housing was likely to lead to further traffic problems on the A40. He said, if you've got a huge housing pressure, the logical place to put homes is around railway stations, as then people have a real option. Mr Maynard said, Computer, uh, sorry, commuters in the area needed a genuine option aside from cycling, as otherwise people were forced to drive. He said, it is all very well berating people to get on their bikes, but people don't have a proper option. They are forced to get in their car for almost all their journeys. Mr Maynard said Whitney and Conservative MP Robert Courts had absolutely failed to take decisive action in terms of addressing the supply of affordable housing, and he was unaware of what the MP had done to tackle the problem. On ideas for a new Whitney railway line, I will always be interested in ideas to improve our transport infrastructure. However, West Oxfordshire residents will be concerned to learn of the link made by the Liberals between affordable housing and the provision of an entirely new railway line. The price tag for that project is, on the basis of the Liberals' own report, the thick end of £1 billion. The upgrades to the Chiltern line for Bicester cost £32 million, a project far smaller in scope than any Whitney line, but requiring significant housing. 
The reality is that any project here would be accompanied by a vast increase in housing to match the huge price tag, way above anything yet envisioned. Given their refusal to release the report that lies behind the press release, given their refusal to back my campaign to bring the railway line we already have, the Cotswold line, up to its full capacity, lying as it does a mile away from the garden village, residents could be forgiven for fearing that the link made by the Liberals between a new rail line and housing reveals the existence of a secret plan for the wholesale urbanisation of West Oxfordshire. A study exploring the feasibility of the railway line is taking place and this is assessing how planned housing by the A40 can help fund the railway. And a football story now. The headline is United Floundering at Foot of Fairness League Rankings. Oxford United has been placed in the bottom half of League One clubs in a new index of fairness in football. Fair Game, a campaign group which works to improve how football is governed, has said the sport urgently needs a reboot, as many clubs in the lower leagues are struggling financially. The Index of Fairness in Football determines a club's ranking using more than 80 sources of data which draw on a club's finances, commitment to equality, fan engagement and governance of clubs in England's top leagues. Oxford United scored 28 out of 100 on the index and this placed the club 21st of all clubs in League One last season. The index revealed that the club ranked 20th in League One for its financial stability. The report also states that Oxford United is not signed up to the living wage scheme, as previously reported by this newspaper. This scheme commits employers to pay all staff a minimum of £10.90 or £11.95 if they are based in London. The club was named and shamed last month for breaching the national minimum wage law and failing to pay more than £10,000 to 31 workers. Mark Middling, Director of Financial Policy for Fair Game, said, Football is unsustainable. Since the start of the Premier League, there have been 64 incidents of clubs in the top four divisions going into administration. Companies House data reveals that 44 of the top 92 were technically insolvent in 2022, and 31% of clubs were spending more than they earn on players' wages. That figure rises to 68% when you look at the championship. The culture of penalties to control clubs has failed. Fair Games proposals include Premier League clubs contributing 25% of their revenue to lower league clubs alongside 10% of all transfer fees. This would result in Oxford United receiving an estimated £1.7 million, which would be £837,000 more than they do under the current model of redistributing funds. Niall Cooper, chief executive of Fair Game, added, 
Premier League clubs have rejected calls to increase the financial flow through the pyramid because of risky financial behaviour by some clubs in the EFL. Distributing more money through the index to the better-run clubs in the pyramid resolves those concerns. In League One, Cambridge United topped the rankings, with Plymouth Argyle taking the second spot and Lincoln City came in third. Oxford United has been approached for comment. And now two short items, and the first one headed 70 weight for organ donors. More than 70 patients in Oxfordshire are waiting for an organ donor to save their life. Latest annual figures by NHS Blood and Transplant show that last year there was 5% increase in the number of patients who received a successful organ transplant across the UK. And in Oxfordshire, there were less transplants compared to the year before. A total of 42 patients in this county received a transplant, compared to 59 the year before. There are 7,000 people on the active transplant, transplant waiting list in the UK. 72 of those are from Oxfordshire. And the second item... Illegal hunting accused is facing new charges. A man accused of illegal hunting and animal welfare offences has been handed new charges. William Warren, aged 38, of Main Road, Barnard Gate, Whitney, appeared in Oxford Magistrates Court on Wednesday of last week, charged with two counts each of animal welfare offences and hunting offences, by postal requisition on April the 15th. He was charged with two other counts of animal welfare offences on March 15th. Warren, 38, was then charged with hunting mammals with dogs in addition to the original charges last week. The charges relate to animal welfare and hunting offences at an address in Main Road, Barnard Gate, in October and November last year and on March 30th this year. He remains on bail. Concern over dangerously overgrown bicycle paths. There are concerns that is only a matter of time before there is a serious accident on a dangerously overgrown path in Whitney. The hedges near Sainsbury's in Whitten Way and Station Lane encroach onto the pavement which is split into a pedestrian and cycle path. Andy Hobday, who lives nearby, said, The pedestrian path is on the right, by the hedge, but you can't actually see this part of the track anymore. It is so far under cover. It would be impossible for a pedestrian to walk along Whitten Way without crashing into some foliage. This means that if people are walking along there, they have to move over in the path of the bicycles, into the path of the bicycles. It is only a matter of time before there is a serious accident there. It is the responsibility of Sainsbury's to cut the overgrown hedges outside the supermarket, but the path is owned by Oxfordshire County Council. Mr Hobday explained that the path had been a persistent problem for more than two years, 
and despite raising the issue with elected representatives, he said nothing had been done to resolve the issue. He added, If the local council want to encourage people to get out on their get out of their cars and onto their bikes, they need to ensure that the cycle paths are up to scratch. Fix My Street is a website which allows people to inform their local authority of problems needing attention. One person commented on the platform about the issue. The pavement alongside Sainsbury's in Station Lane is severely overgrown, forcing pedestrians to walk in the cycle lane with all the dangers that that represents. Sainsbury's has said that it is aware of the issue outside the store in Whitney. A company spokeswoman said, We are aware of the overgrown hedge on a pathway in the car park of our Whitney store. We are working hard to resolve this, and we apologise for any inconvenience caused. Oxfordshire County Council said that one resident had been in touch with them about the overgrown path. A spokesperson for the County Council explained they can request the landowner to act in circumstances where vegetation blocks to to access council-owned infrastructure. The concerns regarding Whitton Way and Station Lane in Whitney come following similar fears about a cycle and pedestrian path on the A40 near Ensham. The route between Whitney and Oxford has become overgrown with grass and weeds, forcing pedestrians into the path of cyclists. Last week, Councillor Duncan Enright, the Cabinet Member for Travel and Development Strategy, said that investment along the A40 was much needed. And now it's time for the regular editor's piece. Researching family history is a hobby that's booming in popularity, especially since many archives have become accessible online and with the rise of TV shows such as Who Do You Think You Are? I've been researching some of my family's history, so I thought it might be useful to talk about genealogy and look at what's involved and how you can get started. The word genealogy comes from the Greek for generations and knowledge. Essentially, it's the study of families and tracing their lineages and history. Your approach to genealogy, if you get interested in it, will depend on your particular interests. For example, you might want to find out if you're related to somebody famous or discover the truth about a family mystery. For instance, I know that in 1891, my grandfather William was a Thames lighterman, living in London and ferrying passengers and cargo across the Thames, supporting a family of six. But shortly after the 1891 census, disaster struck the family and William died in 1892. His wife Emma, described in the next census in 1901 as a 45-year-old widow, took in washing to support the family and died just three years later. We don't know how or why William died, and I'll have to order his death certificate to find out more. There can be more pleasant surprises in store too. A close friend of ours, who had been adopted at birth, discovered that her real father was actually a 1950s film star. When it comes to your own research, it's best to start with yourself and then work backwards, finding evidence that connects each generation together. 
Through public records, you can find this information in birth certificates, marriage certificates and wills. Much of this information is publicly available. If your relatives were in the forces, it's possible to access service records and if they died in service, find their grave through the War Graves Commission. Talking to people and writing to relatives could also provide clues and ultimately your detective work could take you anywhere from local graveyards and memorials to record offices and even to war graves abroad. In fact, a large part of the fun is about sharing research and stories, so it's not all about paperwork and online searches. Ask everyone in the family for their stories. Some may be based in truth and help with your research. Others, however, may be a little off the mark. One researcher um, I read about, as an example, was asking a relative about the family and was told with great certainty that her husband's family came from Westmoreland in Cumbria. On further investigation, it transpired they came from the West Country, Cornwall. Take care to keep all your research well organised so that you can come back to it at any time. You can do this writing longhand or using a speech-to-text dictation tool on a computer or even a smartphone, which is what I do when I'm writing up notes. Websites such as Ancestry, Find My Past and My Heritage all offer a free trial period, which after, after that is over, a small monthly fee is to be paid depending on the amount of access you require from their databases. In many cases, you can also get to these sites for absolutely nothing at your local library and where staff should be able to help you with access. Text-to-speech assistance tools can read the results for you and it's great if you can work with someone who shares your interest in your family's history. It's perhaps easiest to start with the censuses and registers of births, marriages and deaths. A census happens every 10 years in the UK the first was in 1801. Censuses from the mid-19th century onwards give details of names, family members, occupations and addresses. To begin your search, simply start by entering all the details you know about one of your relatives. Their full name, where they lived, their date of birth if you know it, and then you're off. Some of these websites can also alert you to anyone else researching the same people as you, giving you the opportunity to share your work. I've already found a second cousin this way, and we met for the very first time last year. What else you do with the information will depend on which aspects take your interest. You may decide to learn more about a particular ancestor, or the social history of a certain time when your relatives lived, or even connect with living relatives from a different family line. It's a fascinating journey to go on, and far, far easier than it was just a few years ago. So, now it's time for part two, and we begin with our regular quiz, and the answers from the last edition on the 13th of July, 2023. Good luck to you and to all our readers. Question number one. Which is the only muscle of the human body that is not attached at both ends? It's actually the tongue. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Took me a while to work that. Well, I didn't work it out. I had to look it up. 
Next question. From which plant is linen made? Flax. Flax. Yep. Flax is the right answer. If all the books of the Bible were arranged in alphabetical order, which would come first? Apostles. It's actually Acts. So I suppose Acts of the Apostles. Acts. Yeah, is what the what the answer is given here. Next question: From which language does the word kiosk originate? Spanish, Turkish, or Russian? Any guesses? I'd guess Russian. It's actually Turkish. Is it? Yeah. And finally, the adventures of which literary character was based on the life of Alexander Selkirk? Uh, Robinson Crusoe. It is indeed Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, if you remember watching the TV series back in the 1950s, 40s, 60s. And now for this week's quiz. This week's quiz is all about July. Number one. Which July day is a national holiday in the USA? Number two, who stepped on the moon on July the twenty-first? Three, which gemstone, a variety of the mineral corundum, and which symbolizes contentment, is the birthstone for July? Which zodiac sign? Ends on July the twenty-second, and which sign comes right after it? And finally, question number five: A famous festival is held in Whitstable, Kent, each year for three days in July. Which food does it celebrate? So, moving on, five deaths were reported in the Whitney Gazette this week. And we're saddened to announce the following names and dates: On July the sixth, Hillary Christine McCormack; on July the ninth, Barbara June Govier; on July the tenth, Nicholas Francis Valili; on July the eleventh, Michael Dowley; and on July the fifteenth, William Cipher. Condolences from all of us to their friends and families. And so back to our news. At the beginning of this recording, I promised you a report on Boris Johnson's new swimming pool, and here's Barbara to read it to you. That's right. Boris wants swimming pool at three point eight million pound mansion. Boris Johnson wants to build a swimming pool in his new three point eight million pound Oxfordshire mansion. The former Prime Minister, fifty-nine, has applied for planning permission. For the work in the grounds of Brightwell Manor, the nine-bedroom home in Brightwell cum Sotwell, where he moved with wife Carrie, thirty-five, in May, the four-hundred-year-old property is set in nearly five acres, which include a walled garden, tennis court, and three-sided moat. An application has been made via Clearwater Pools to South Oxfordshire District Council. For the development of an 11 meter by 4 meter swimming pool, surrounded by a tiled area, it is under consultation with a target decision date of August the 14th. But Brightwell Parish Council has submitted a holding objection to the plans and refer the matter for an archaeological survey. 
due to the considerable archaeological interest county archaeological service sorry county archaeological services recommends mr johnson should be required to monitor for important archaeological finds if planning permission is granted since he resigned as prime minister in june 2022 mr johnson has earned nearly 5 million pounds he is also set to earn 1 million pounds over 2 years for his new role as a newspaper columnist for the daily mail so from boris's swimming pool to blenheim palace gardens gardens to see biggest changes for a century The head gardener at world-renowned Blenheim Palace has revealed the biggest plans to transform the gardens in more than 100 years. Andy Mills' 10-year vision will see the reintroduction of many lost features and elements which have disappeared over the last 3 centuries. Work has already begun at the palace in Woodstock, which is home to more than 90 acres of gardens. The changes include excavating the lost ponds at the walled garden and the rose garden, restoring the croquet shed and lawn, and building a brand new rockery. Mr. Mills said, "Our aim is to strengthen Blenheim Palace's place on the world garden map. We are blessed with 90 acres of inspirational gardens. These plans will make them even more stunning than ever and truly blow people away." The area which Mr Mills intends to restore to its original grandeur includes rustic bridges over the river to an island which had a rustic octagonal summer house. The formal gardens at the palace were created over centuries by esteemed designers such as Henry Wise and Archil Duchesne. They reflect a journey through the horticultural styles of the ages. Since his appointment in August last year, Mr Mills has been researching the garden's history to help formulate his ambitious plans. Mr Mills said, "I began by taking a walk around the gardens and noting down what needs to be done now, next week, next month, next year and so on, developing a plan. I then spent time working alongside each member of the garden team." asking many questions and listening to their ideas in addition i spent many happy hours trawling the internet for images of the garden from the past and looking at the depicted areas now i have been asking a lot of questions of the garden team plus i have been sending a lot of inquiries to the blenheim archivist and our social historian he added There are a number of very well-written historical reference books about Blenheim with some amazing anecdotes about the different dukes and their preferred garden styles. A large part of my role is to identify who did what, why, when, and who removed it and if it is feasible, sensible, and worthwhile to restore it. and another garden story headed it's back to the future as historic garden restored after 4 years of restoration national trust's owned chastleton house's best garden is now back to its original jacobean format featuring a central sundial 
Prior to the restoration, the garden's flower beds had been turfed over and only contained a circular hedge and cloud topiary. Now, thanks to the restoration team, two new circular hedges have been added, along with bedding circles, topiary and a narrow path to walk alongside it all. Chasselton, near Chipping Norton, was owned by the same family for nearly 400 years. In the early days of the 17th century, the family became impoverished and due to them being unable to update the house, the house remained a Jacobean time capsule. This means that the garden has kept its original layout. The garden is arranged in a cross shape around the house with games lawns, public rooms in the house and a calm space in the south court. As the National Trust acquired Chasselton in 1991, a conservation garden plan was drawn up, which was not to fully restore it, but to retain and preserve its faded and romantic air of decline. The restoration team broke ground in 2019, but were delayed by their progress in their progress by COVID. Head gardener Rosie Sutton said that before the restoration, visitors would scuttle across the turf to the exit, but now people stay for ages. Chasselton is between Chipping Norton and Morton in Marsh. For details on visiting times and prices, go to nationaltrust.org.uk and there's a lovely picture of the house and two workers working on the garden and it looks beautiful. School celebrates 150th year in bright style is the headline. Staff and pupils at a village school have toasted a special 150th year milestone. A morning of sports and family picnic took place at Clanfield Primary School in the village near Bampton. The children also took part in the school's first ever sponsored colour run, which raised £1,090. The school's head teacher, Kim Rogers, welcomed former staff, pupils and governors for a trip down memory lane with photos from the past 150 years. The evening was topped off by the unveiling of a 150-year mosaic made using the school emblem and ideas from the children. Traditional games such as a coconut shy and a hooker duck helped raise £7,800 for the school. Head teacher Kim Rogers has said, It is a real privilege to be head teacher of this wonderful school. I am proud of all the people who contribute in some way to providing high-quality education, opportunities and experiences for our children. Twelve kittens rescued from Alpine F1 garage. A dozen kittens were rescued from the Alpine F1 team garage over the British Grand Prix weekend. The cats were found by charity Chirlwell Cats Protection at the base in Enstone near Chipping Norton. The kittens will be looking for new homes in three to four weeks. Anyone interested can email the charity here, and it's quite a long uh, address. It's inquiries at chirwell.cats.org.uk. 
Emily Parker, coordinator for Chirwell Cats Protection Charity, said we jumped to help when we received a call about 12 black kittens needing rescuing. Whilst we have the facilities to care for these kittens, the cost of getting them ready for homes adds up. Each kitten will cost us around £130 each for our minimum veterinary requirements. If you wish to donate, we would be extremely grateful. The Alpine team is fifth in the constructor standings behind Red Bull Racing, Mercedes, Aston Martin and Ferrari. It is owned by Renault and there's a beautiful picture of two of the 12 kittens rescued from the Alpine F1 garage. And it's beautiful. Two of them are wide awake, their eyes wide open and they're behind a little model of one of the cars. And the headline of this one is... Adventure Playground gets £80,000 refurb. An Adventure Playground is to receive an £80,000 refurbishment after its timber climbing frame began to decay. Kilkenny Lane Park in Carterton, which receives 100,000 visitors a year, will undergo an upgrade and maintenance work later this year, as West Oxfordshire District Council's Cabinet approved the funding from Section 106 Developers' Contributions. Users can also look forward to new equipment being installed, including two new diggers for the sandpit, two additional picnic tables for the sandpit area, a new rope basket swing, a 360-degree seat in the centre of the teen shelter area, and three new rockers. In April 2022, an annual Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents Safety Inspection Report identified possible decay in some of the timbers of the climbing frame, which had to be closed for further inspection. Councillor Joy Aitman said, I am delighted to announce that this funding will be made available not just for repair and maintenance, but to add some new items of play equipment to the park. The safety of our residents is of utmost importance, and I appreciate that there has been a period where some of the equipment at the park has been out of action. I am grateful for the patience of residents and visitors to the park whilst we made sure safety investigations took place. I know it will be received as great news for the community, that we are now able to move things forward, get the necessary repairs completed, and even create a better experience for all those visiting. Forest fans enjoy a day with the Anglo-Saxons. The sites of Anglo-Saxon England were brought to life for the thousands of visitors to Witchwood Forest Fair, which ended with a group sing-along to music played on the spoons. The annual fair, organised by Habitat Restoration Charity, the Witchwood Forest Trust, celebrates rural traditions. This year, all proceeds will go towards rewilding Gibbets Close Hill, 50 acres of former livestock farmland in open countryside between Encham and Whitney, acquired by the Trust through a legacy in 2022. Maeve Bradbury of the Trust said it was a great day with a lovely vibe and mostly hot and sunny. Even a brief but torrential downpour in the afternoon didn't dampen spirits.
Cherwell Radio provided the on-site public address. Abingdon and Whitney College ran a very well-attended dog show, as well as bringing some of their farm animals for everyone to meet, and a few ponies to give the children pony rides around the site. The Buttercross Ukulele Band played first, followed by Whitney Town Band. Local folk singer, musician Katie Grace Harris, with cellist, cellist Andy Nice, closed the fair and got everyone singing along and playing the spoons. The Forest Fair in Foxborough Wood, on the outskirts of Whitney, is the charity's biggest fundraising event of the year. Miss Bradbury said, We are very grateful for everyone who came to support the nature conversation work we do in the West Oxfordshire area. Palace ready for Christmas in summer. While most people are thinking of hot sun and sandy beaches, Burnham Palace is now selling tickets for its Christmas experience this year. The Woodstock Palace will open outdoor trails with glowing tunnels, heart-shaped arches and an 8-metre sphere filled with more than 20,000 moving LED lights from November the 17th to January the 1st. Visitors will also see the return of ever-popular dancing reflections along the lakeside walk in the grounds. In the East Courtyard, visitors will be able to sample and buy festive food from a selection of hand-picked street vendors and can walk the grounds with hot chocolate or a spiced winter warmer. Inside the palace, the rooms have been transformed into a retelling of the fairy tale Sleeping Beauty. Visitors will experience the story as they, had, as they travel through the building, which will be filled with fairies and creeping vines. The Great Court will host the Artisan Christmas Market, offering a selection of arts, crafts, homewares and festive treats. Dominic Hare, Blenheim Palace Chief Executive, said staff are looking forward to presenting the beauty of the palace both inside and out at a time so precious to families and loved ones. The palace is urging people to book as early as possible to secure their place in this seasonal event and discover a world like no other with tickets on sale now at the Blenheim Palace website. That's an advert. Should be reading that. So there you are, folks. Even though it's July, it's never too early to order those Christmas cards, pre-order that turkey, and get that Christmas tree planted. <laughs> so, time for a quick notice board. There are a few weekend items which may be of interest over the next few days. At the Soldiers of Oxfordshire Museum in Park Street, Woodstock, there is an exhibition on women and war, telling stories of women in the armed forces in World War I and II. The exhibition is open from 11am and entry to the museum and exhibition is £6.50. At Newnham Park, Newnham Court near Oxfordshire, you can join the Global Retreat Centre, which is based there, for the opportunity to look around the house and enjoy two hours of live performance song, talks and closing meditation. That's from 2pm on Sunday the 23rd of July. For further information, call 01865 630 150. 
Also on Sunday, at Wantage Marketplace, if you happen to be passing, at two o'clock in the afternoon, there is a free live music concert by the Wantage Silver Band. Finally in this section, Whitney Torch Fellowship provides advice, support, opportunities for fellowship and library services free of charge. It meets on the first Saturday of every month at 2pm in the Welcome Church, High Street, Whitney. New members are very welcome and the contact number is 01993-891-639. So that's it for this week. As well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways for you to listen to all our editions, including the magazines. Whitney Talking News is available online via our new and easier-to-use website, wtn.org.uk. Even if you've been to our online site before, it's worth revisiting as new features make it even easier to listen to each week's Whitney Talking News. Please remember to pass on the details to anyone else who might like to listen to your weekly local news programme. And please keep listening at the very end of our programme for an info sound item which gives some highlights of this week's best radio listening and audio described TV. If you're not listening online and have a USB memory stick and stick reader, please remove the stick from the playback unit, close the metal shield, Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting the stick back to us. Please do so as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. Remember, if you wish to contact us, just leave a slip of paper in your pouch and we will phone you. It's only left for me to thank the Whitney Gazette and the Oxford Times for the content we've used tonight. Thanks also to our mixmaster, Rob Oxpring, who has recorded this session on our computer, and to Andrew, who will be copying all the memory sticks with me later on this evening. A big thank you to our volunteers, Penny Brading and Lynn Harding, who have been checking all the pouches and all the memory sticks that you have returned, and keeping all our records in the register. And finally, a big thanks to our readers tonight, Barbara Berringer, Jill Breakspear, Andrew Dilger and Mike Franklin. I know everyone would like to say goodbye, and so until our next edition next week, goodbye. 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 Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, July 22nd. Threads of Life, a history of the world through the eye of a needle, is an account of how people through the ages have used sewing and embroidery to tell their stories. Radio 4 Extra, 1230 in today's edition of the Infinite Monkey Cage, The Secret Life of Sharks, Brian Cox and Robert Ince find out about the surprising behaviour of sharks from guests including naturalist Steve Backshall. Radio 4 for this, 7.15pm. And a reminder, the proms are in full swing and can be heard every evening on Radio 3 from 730 Sunday, July 23rd, a dramatisation of the fifth of seven autobiographies by the American poet Maya Angelou 
called All God's Children Need Travelling Shoes. Ready for extra for this at 12.50 in the afternoon or 6.50 in the evening if you prefer. David Attenborough's Life Stories, a long-running series of short programmes about the natural world. Today's episode features the Fire Salamander, which was Attenborough's first pet. It can be heard on Radio 4 Extra at 3.45 in the afternoon or this evening, Sunday evening, 9.45pm. Castaway on Desert Island Discs is the crossbench peer, Lord Simon Woolley, Radio 4, 11.15am. There's an afternoon session of the proms from Sage Gateshead with a programme of traditional African-American spirituals on Radio 3 at 2 o'clock. While in opening nines, John York takes a look at Bertolt Brecht's play Mother Courage and Her Children, followed by a performance of the play narrated by a modern observer from present-day Ukraine. Opening lines, 2.45, Radio 4, Sunday afternoon, followed by the performance at 3 o'clock. Onto the programmes then that are broadcast at the same time every day, Monday to Friday. So serialised all week, same time, same radio station, each day. In Book of the Week, Attack Warning Red, Julie McDowell's book looking at the history of plans to deal with a nuclear attack. 9.45, every day, all week, Radio 4. There's a dramatisation of Good Omens, the novel by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, about the demon and angel who had grown fond of life on Earth and would rather not have the arrival of the Antichrist put an end to their comfy existence. It's a Radio Times pick of the week. It's described as a comic masterpiece, and you can hear it on Radio 4 every day at 11am or 4pm. More drama in The Cazalettes, The Light Years, by Elizabeth Jane Howard, the first part of a five-book saga of a well-to-do middle-class family, The Cazalette Chronicles, which opens in 1937. Ready for extra again for this one, 12.15 in the afternoon or 5.15 in the evening. Composer of the week is Jermaine Telefair, 1892-1983, to 12 noon, Monday to Friday, on Radio 3. Well, as part of the series The Essay, Blood and Bronze is a ten-part series retracing the life of the charismatic yet dangerous Renaissance character through his shocking autobiography. It's on Radio 3. It's on all week at 10.45pm. And to then some of the other highlights for the rest of the week, Monday, July 24th. The series The NHS Who Cares continues this week with Myths and Magic Bullets, in which Dr Kevin Fong gets past the myths to reveal the complexity of the NHS and examine what really lies behind the challenges it faces. It's first thing, Monday morning, Radio 4, 9am. A new series of History on the Edge begins with Denmark Place, telling the story of a catastrophic fire at the Spanish rooms which killed 37 people in 1980. 11am, Radio 4. A dramatisation of Daniel Doronda, George Eliot's 1876 novel about Victorian society in three parts, starts on Monday, continues on Tuesday and Wednesday, Radio 4, at either 10am or 3pm. In the third degree, the series of quiz shows in which students take on their dons, this week's teams are from Keele University, Radio 4, 3 o'clock. And there's more light-hearted quizzing in the popular panel show, I'm sorry I haven't a clue. Radio 4, 6.30. Tuesday, July 25th. In the series In Search of a Calmer Mind, this week's edition is called Air and looks at how breathing techniques can positively impact brain activity. Radio 4, 9.30am. Song of the Bell is a documentary about the journey of Italian-built church bells to their new home in Nigeria. Or BBC World Service for this, 
9.30 in the morning, or, if you'd prefer, 5 past 8 at night. And the importance of sheep in the UK, how the farm subsidised system has changed post-Brexit, and what it means for the future of the animal, is examined in The Trouble with Sheep, Radio 4, 11am on Tuesday. A hundred years ago, in May 1923, Henry Bamber, a property developer, put up a series of 45 feet high letters on a scrubby hillside in Los Angeles. It's now one of the most recognisable structures in the world. David Willis tells its story in Hollywood, Radio 4, 11.30am. This week's word of mouth sounds interesting as Michael Rosen talks to Lonnie Evans, who audio describes in theatres and museums, and Terry James, who is vision impaired and trains audio describers. Radio 4, 4pm, 4 for word of mouth. And as usual, Peter White presents In Touch with news and features for people who are blind or partially sighted on Radio 4 on Tuesday evening at 8.40. Wednesday, July 26th. Vintage comedy in the form of Hancock's Half Hour, Radio 4 Extra at 8am or 1pm or 6pm. There's a new series of Reflections, now presented by James Nocty, who invites leading political figures to reflect on their careers. He begins with former Chancellor and Home Secretary Ken Clark. Radio 4, 9am Wednesday morning. Living on the Edge, the series focusing on life on coastal locations, travels to Port Rush in Northern Ireland, and here's from RNI lifeboat volunteer Lisa Abernethy. You can hear it on Radio 4 at 9.30. In the series History's Secret Heroes, this week's programme is called Jack King and the Fifth Column. Helena Bottom Carter shines a light on the story of Eric Roberts, a bank worker from Surrey, who joined MI5 to hunt British Nazi sympathisers under the alias Jack King. It's on Radio 4 at 11.30am. And in the Moral Maze, Michael Burke and his guests discuss the moral aspects of a topical issue. Radio 4, 8pm. Thursday, July 27th, a new series of How to Play visits the BBC National Chorus and Orchestra of Wales as they rehearse for a performance of Fue's Requiem. Radio 4, 9am. Now, the series concluding fifth Ashes Test between England and Australia is at the Oval on Test Match Special. Will England and Australia still have something to play for? It's from 10.25 on Radio 4 Longwave or on 5 Sports Extra. New series of Crossing Continents begins with Botswana living with elephants on Radio 4 at 11am. Open Country, a story of sea and stone, looking at the town of Whitby and its association with fossils is on Radio 4 at 3. Walt Disney, A Life in Films, this week features the 1942 Disney classic Bambi on Radio 4 at 4. And in the first of a four-part series, Windrush, A Family Divided, discusses the legacy of the Windrush generation, starting with work and money. Radio 4, 9.30pm. So lastly, Friday, July 28th, the subject of witness is the Soviet Gulag, seen through the eyes of a Russian Jew who spent five years in prison camps in the late 40s and early 50s. Radio 4, 2.45. Gardner's Question Time this week answers the audience's horticultural queries in Haywards Heath on Radio 4 at 3pm. Mr Harrison's Confession is a dramatisation of Elizabeth Gaskell's 1851 novel about provincial Cranford's new surgeon who discovers all his female patients require one remedy, an offer of marriage from him. Radio 4 Extra, on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And to round off the week, any questions comes from Charfield Village Hall in Gloucestershire. Panellists include Shadow International Trade Secretary Nick Thomas-Simons MP, on Radio 4 at 8pm.
that's it for this week. Thank you to Wendy for the highlights. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable one of radio listening. Hello, this is Lizzie from Otley Talking News with Val's selection of audio-described TV programmes. Starting... Saturday the 22nd of July to Friday the 28th of July 2023. So, let's see what we can find this week that might interest you. We start with Saturday the 22nd of July. Wimbledon may have finished, but the usual daytime weekend schedules are affected by coverage of the Women's Football World Cup. The adventurer leads a team of elite explorers to the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico in Undiscovered Worlds with Steve Bakishaw on BBC Two at 11am. Dishes on a budget are on the menu this morning in Nadia Bakes at 11.30am on BBC One. The afternoon film on BBC Two at 4.45pm is the historical drama The Young Victoria. Three years after becoming Queen, she marries Albert. But Victoria finds herself in the middle of a constitutional crisis. A new series of the game show that can make contestants wealthy with the role of a ball starts tonight. Moneyball is on ITV1 at 8pm. Donna struggles for a relentless run of back-to-back shifts, but how much strain can she bear? Find out in tonight's Casualty at 8.25pm on BBC One. More scheming and plotting in the Tudor households in tonight's episode of the drama Becoming Elizabeth on Channel 4 at 9.15pm. In ITV1's Saturday Night Drama, Lennox and Drummond reach Leeds to find the van that was used to abduct Brittany, who has vanished. When another girl goes missing, Lennox knows who the culprit is. Avine Welsh's Crime is on ITV1 at 10pm. Tonight's late-night film is a romantic comedy. A working-class New Yorker travels to Singapore with her boyfriend and discovers that his family is hugely wealthy. Crazy Rich Asians is on BBC One at 10.25pm. Moving on to Sunday the 23rd of July. Steve Brown helps two sisters search for a house in Kent in Escape to the Country on BBC One at 4.35pm. In tonight's nature series, the season is summer. In the Rocky Mountains of Canada, the summers are short and the mountain-dwelling pikers must harvest flowers to feed on before the snow returns. Meanwhile, in northern Australia, it's bushfire season and the flames are threatening the hooded parrots and their offspring. A Year on Planet Earth is on ITV1 at 8pm. 
In tonight's episode of the Sunday Night War drama, Harry struggles to adapt to the realities of desert combat, and Lois longs to leave home and tells Tom about what happened on the night of the air raid. World on Fire is on BBC One at 9 p.m. Or in the spy drama A Spy Among Friends over on ITV One at nine. Philby realizes the KGB can never fully trust him now he's in Moscow. Over on Channel Four, a new documentary series starts tonight. Guy Martin visits Colombia to find out if the country can escape its long history of drugs and violence. He kicks off his trip. By undergoing the brutal kidnap training that politicians go through, as he's gagged, bound, and waterboarded, our guy in Colombia is on Channel Four at nine p.m. Now for those programs which are on at the same time throughout the week, on BBC One, Homes Under the Hammer is at eleven fifteen. And Bargain Hunt is at twelve fifteen, both Monday to Thursday only. Rick Stein's Cornwall is at one forty five. Robson Green's Weekend Escapes is at two fifteen, and Escape to the Country is at two forty five p.m. All Monday to Friday. Great Coastal Railway Journeys is on BBC Four at seven p.m. Monday to Thursday. Heartbeat is on ITV Three at six p.m. and seven p.m. Monday to Friday. Let's have a look at Monday the twenty-fourth of July. Bill Bailey meets junior Doctor Grace, who suffered. A life-changing injury to her spinal cord when she was a fourth-year medical student. She is paired with a rising star of the art world, Jamisha Madhavji, whose work is inspired by subjects who don't fit conventional social labels. Find out more in Extraordinary Portraits with Bill Bailey at eight thirty p.m. on BBC One. In the second of the first round matches, students from the University of Aberdeen take on a team from the University of Birmingham in tonight's University Challenge at eight thirty p.m. on BBC Two. Several choices at nine o'clock tonight. Mark and Natalie visit the home of Ian and Sue. To gather more details on the relationship between Ben and Peter, as the police trawl through evidence, they make a startling discovery: the sixth commandment is on BBC One at nine p.m., and the final episode is at the same time tomorrow. Chris Packham looks at how Earth became almost completely frozen over. With the survival of life hanging in the balance, in tonight's episode of the documentary Earth, at 9 p.m. on BBC Two, two more people search for their birth families in Long Lost Family, at 9 p.m. on ITV One.
and more patients, visit A&E at Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham in 24 hours in A&E on Channel 4 at 9pm. A new series starts tonight, described by the Radio Times as truly uplifting. A team of fashion designers, stylists, tailors and dressmakers, each of whom identifies as disabled, make bespoke outfits to fit everybody in their custom-built shop. The unique boutique is on Channel 4 at 10pm. On to Tuesday the 25th of July. We start tonight's choices with a documentary that looks at how electric cars work and finds out if the UK is on target to abandon petrol vehicles ahead of the 2050 net zero deadline. Electric cars, what they really mean for you, is on BBC One at 8pm. Paul watches the operation to repair three-month-old Oliver's cleft lip and meets the team who are dedicated to helping feed the 6,000 babies treated at Great Ormond Street every year in Paul O'Grady's Little Heroes on ITV1 at 8pm. Tonight's fresh batch of pastry chefs are tasked with transforming the humble bread and butter pudding into a fine dining experience. Find out how they get on in Bake Off the Professionals on Channel 4 at 8pm. Don't forget the final episode of the drama The Sixth Commandment on BBC One at 9pm. The team joined the search for a woman who has left a suicide note and vanished into the night in tonight's episode of Skycoppers at 9pm on Channel 4. Another chance to watch a documentary from 2012, charting the live and prolific career of Dad's Army actor John LeMessurier with contributions by Michael Pollan, Clive Dunn and Ian Lavender. John LeMessurier, It's All Been Rather Lovely, is on BBC4 at 9pm. Now for Wednesday, the 26th of July. Jay Blades and the team restore a music box with a magical connection, a much-loved push-along horse and a damaged penny arcade game in the repair shop at 8pm on BBC One. In tonight's visit to the sewing room, the finalists must make a Victorian-style evening dress, transform female party wear into a glamorous men's red carpet outfit, and fit a Met Gala-worthy two-in-one dress for a family member or friend. Who will judges Patrick Grant and Esme Young choose as this year's champion? Find out in The Great British Sewing Bee at 9pm on BBC One. Or maybe you'd like some comedy. Terry and Gemma from Draper's Tours 
are forced to take refuge at a sinister and dilapidated caravan park after their coach breaks down. During their stay, visitors and residents begin to be bumped off one by one. Follow the ridiculous twists, and maybe you'll spot the guilty party. Dial M for Middlesbrough is on BBC Two at nine p.m. The last leg of Joanna's journey takes her to Zanzibar, the Spice Island of Africa, where merchants from around the world have left their mark on the architecture, religion, and music. Joanna Lumley's Spice Trail Adventure is on ITV One at nine p.m. Thursday, the twenty seventh of July, a new documentary series starts tonight about the hospitality industry. The chef Tom Kerridge lifts the lid on the industry he loves, and tonight focuses on the highly competitive world of fine dining, asking if it's possible to reach perfection. The Hidden World of Hospitality with Tom Kerridge is on BBC Two at eight p.m. After Owen Thorner plunges from the roof of a car park, DCI Stanhope detects foul play. Vera is on ITV Three at eight p.m. As actor Leslie Manville delves into her ancestry, will she find any skeletons in the cupboard? Find out in tonight's episode of Who Do You Think You Are on BBC One at nine p.m. At its peak, the black and white minstrel show was watched by more than twenty million people. In this documentary, the actor David Harewood explores the roots of blackface and why it became so popular. David Harewood on blackface is on BBC Two at nine p.m. It's another highly emotional and tense week in Noel Fitzpatrick's clinic, as more dogs are brought in for his specialised treatment. The super vet Noel Fitzpatrick is on Channel Four at nine p.m. And finally. We come to Friday, the twenty-eighth of July. After a battle with depression in twenty fifteen, and trying to take his own life, Josh Quigley's life took a remarkable turn when he embarked on a journey to cycle around the world. Tonight's documentary from the Our Life series, "Cycling Saved My Life." Is on BBC One at seven thirty p.m. Lucy wants a quiet evening at home to talk to Lee about the state of their marriage, but he doesn't listen to a word she says. Find out why in the sitcom "Not Going Out" on BBC One at nine p.m. A new four-part documentary series. Showing that there were other sides to the story of Marilyn Monroe starts tonight. This first double bill charts the transformation from Nora Jean Baker into her starry alter ego. Reframed, Marilyn Monroe 
is on BBC Two at 9pm. D.I. Sam Gillespie's career is in jeopardy when serial killer The Good Samaritan resurfaces. Sister Boniface Mysteries is on the Drama Channel at 9pm. We end the week with a new comedy series. Martin Parker, an ambitious Stockport businessman, is struggling to cope with the changing times in the early 1990s and needs to make some big decisions. The Power of Parker is on BBC One at 9.30pm. TNF Soundings. 